This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Everyone, I've been waiting for this for a long, long time. We've uh, been trying to connect, but of course, that, that little old tournament called the U.S. Open got in the way. It's the one the only Martina Navratilova, one of the greatest players in the history of tennis, who is nice enough to join me on a busy day here the week after the U.S. Open. How are you, Martina? I'm great, and I'm I'm so glad you said one of the greatest because, you know, it's so... uh, The generations, you cannot compare generation to generation from the 50s to the 70s to the 90s to now is just pointless so i love one of the greatest i'm so happy that i'm in one of those uh one of those lines and uh that's good enough for me well uh, there's, thank you there, there's no there's no doubt about that and, and you and i could go on for a long long time on a multitude of topics because um you have opinions on on so many things outside of the tennis world as well but i first want to get your read because i haven't actually done anything martina since the u.s open ended a few days ago i want to first get your reaction to the men's final uh, which i was there for courtside and covered and what your thoughts on as that unfolded and you watch that turn into a i'm not going to call it a five-set epic but it was certainly a five-set match filled with a lot of drama yeah, there was a lot of drama. The quality was not as good as certainly last year's final between Medvedev and Rafa Nadal, which was phenomenal stuff. Uh, both the men's semifinals and the finals, the guys were making more errors than, than winners, unlike the women's. And I think that's what we thought the women's uh, semis and finals were higher quality stuff, which they were on paper and in reality. But, you you know, the nerves get in the way and, uh, and it's just, Things just happened so quickly, in a way, um, with Sasha Zverev winning the semifinal. One of five setter never came back from two sets to love down. He does that, and then he gets up two sets to love in the final and can't close the deal. So, uh, yeah, I mean, great fight back from Dominic Thiem. Uh, he just never panicked. He, he hung in there. Uh, got a little more aggressive, just cleaned up his game. I think he was just m- making errors that he normally doesn't make. I think his shot selection became a little little better as well. Um, uh, he was patient, uh, but went for the right shot and uh, and just wore, wore Sasha's nerve down. But I think the biggest thing that, again, let Sasha down was the serve. And as you know, when, when the serve goes down, it's the most embarrassing thing because you're complete control. Nobody is making you hit a bad serve. And uh, so you feel total responsibility. So it's good news, bad news. It's all on you. Good news, bad news is it's all on you. So when you hit those bad first serves or double faults, uh, it, it bleeds into the rest of your game more than if any other shot fall, fail, fails you. You can kind of fake your way around it. But when the serve goes, uh, there's no, no coming back from that. And particularly for a guy, it's really, I think, emotionally and totally debilitating. And, um, I mean, obviously you watched the whole thing unfold, Martina, as we all did. It was so bizarre, you know, calling the matches as I was doing there with no fans. I think the weirdest part was leaving at the end of the night matches. You know, I'd walk out of the commentary booth and uh, you're used to seeing all the fans and all the people, you know, talk about the match and, and so on. And, and it, there was none that was literally totally empty. But I thought the players themselves 
and, and as you mentioned it earlier, particularly the, the women players, um, were able to really block it out and, and play amazing tennis. Uh, before we get into the women, though, specifically, I want to ask you what, you what you thought and what you felt at the time. Of course, it was a big story when Djokovic hit the ball and it nailed the Lions person in the throat. What did you think about how that whole yeah. thing went down? Well, I, you know, that was the only possible conclusion was a default. The rules are pretty clear about it. When you hurt somebody, whether you did it on purpose or not is irrelevant. And uh, there was just no coming back from that. I was actually watching the women's match when it happened, and then somebody texted me, Djokovic just got defaulted. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I switched channel, and then I saw the replay. And as soon as I saw the replay, I'm like, oh, yeah, done deal. Right. Uh, so... Just, you know, that split-second bad judgment on, on Novak's part. And as soon as he saw what happened, he knew he was done. Mm -hmm. You know, you have that flicker of recognition in his eyes, and he knew he was he was toast. And it's just something that he will be regretting the rest of his life. But um, you never know. Maybe he, he wouldn't have won the tournament anyway. But it's just such a sad way to go out. Um, you know, nobody wishes that on anybody. I, I, I was getting you know, bombarded on Twitter that it was, they were prejudiced against Djokovic and right. blah, blah, oh, yeah, blah. I got, like, a, look, I got a bunch this, of that too, right, yeah. If, if this had been Rafa Nadal or Roger Federer, uh, it would have been the same end result. And nobody would have said, oh, you prejudiced against Roger Federer. So, I mean, it's, it, maybe the rule is too harsh. Mm -hmm. We can debate that, but it is the rule right now. So you can't say, oh, we're going to change the rule, therefore you're going to be defaulted right now. It's just, it doesn't work that way, as you know, so... Um, I mean, Tim Henman, when he got defaulted for, in the doubles at Wimbledon, he, the kid ran into the ball. Right. So, you know, he wasn't, he knew, he, he was hitting it into the net. There was nobody there. All of a sudden, the kid runs, runs across and bad timing, and he, he knew he was done. Yeah, I, <laughs> uh, this one, this one, uh, nobody hit. Bad. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's amazing when people say to me, uh, you know, well, he didn't do it on purpose. I said, so I asked him two questions. Who had the racket and who had the ball? <laughs> you know, and yeah. the, the answer is Djokovic. Anyway, so the women's, uh, I mean, I thought the, the women's final was really good. Obviously, Azarenka got off to a quick start, a great story for her to come back and, and do what she's done, you know, in the last couple of weeks. And then, by the way, just saw she beat so Sonia Kennan 0-0 today in Rome that. crazy but let's talk let's talk about the open because I thought yeah. you know the Osaka Brady match was one of the best I thought quality matches I've seen in a while mm. amazing athleticism ball striking I was impressed that Brady was able to play at that level um, for for yeah. most of the match he blinked a little bit early in the third but Osaka what a great uh, a ball striker keeping her composure obviously when she was in a little bit of trouble at times but you know she had some hiccups early in the tournament but boy she can hit the ball clean off both sides can't she she's uh she i'm i'm impressed of course with her tennis but really how she kept it together the, all the pressure was on her in that semifinal playing jennifer brady okay and jennifer brady, brady's playing great tennis but really who is jennifer brady in a, in a major level right she's right. She, we're gonna see her again and it's great to see the improvement she's made in the in the covid uh break but uh but still, the pressure is all on Osaka, and then Brady plays a great match, great first set, no breaks of serve, and it was just so tight. It would have been easy for, for Osaka to panic just a little bit, have one bad service game, and the match is over. But she didn't. And so the mental toughness that she shows time and time again 
is really impressive. She just believes, she has a very clear idea of what she wants to do. I feel when she's hitting the ball, uh, her shot selection is excellent. She doesn't have the, the transitional game. She doesn't come to the net. She doesn't want to be hitting volleys, and I think that's where she can improve the most. Mm-hmm. But everything else, uh, she moves well. She really improved her movement and, and her ability to get in good position to hit every ball. She defends better now. So it's really hard to find openings against her. Moves forward into the court better, but then she backs up. She doesn't move forward. But, you know, that's, that's, that's a place where she can improve. But the mental toughness as well as the actual strokes, there really is nothing wrong that can go with her strokes um, overall. I feel she's, like, cleaned up her forehand. It's a little bit, little bit more um, tailored. <laughs> Uh, and uh, serve is excellent. Uh, second serve, I think, will improve with time as well. Uh, she can get a more kick on it, and uh, and the backhand solid. So she's just uh, she's the whole package. Yeah. Yeah, and you were the whole package too, and everybody knows that. Fifty nine majors, singles, doubles, mixed, and uh, you hold, you still hold the record for the most singles and doubles titles in the Open era, one sixty seven, one seventy seven in doubles. So I want to get into. Um, a big part of why I wanted to get you on, I spoke to your longtime buddy and rival, Chrissy Everett, a couple of months mm-hmm. ago, and find out how Martina Navratilova got started in tennis, how it happened, and why it happened. Well, it was pretty simple. My whole family played tennis. Uh, my, my stepfather actually met my mother at the, at, in the club in, in town. I grew up in a very small town in, outside Prague, mm-hmm. uh, four tennis courts, and... Uh, in the spring, you would, uh, you know, go and, and, uh, volunteer at the club. Instead of paying dues, you would volunteer, do a certain amount of hours. And so, of course, in the spring, you have to get the courts ready. We have to roll, roll, roll. Then you put on the new layer of clay, several, and then you put, and then you line the court, put up the net, and you play. Uh, first you have to pull out all the weeds. So I was helping out when I was five years old, and, and uh, my mom met my father when he was taking the wheelbarrow back from the court. Uh, back to the pile of clay, and uh, I would I would hop into the wheelbarrow. That's how he met my mom. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, I started hitting against the wall for a couple of years. Um, my, I used my grandmother's wooden racket from like the twenties, right. and it was too big to hold with one hand. So I just did two hundred backhands against the wall. Now you wait, hold on, but before you start, before you went, your grandmother was actually a really good player, right? In the Czech, in, in, <laughs> was, was then Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. She was decent. I mean, they didn't have any rankings back then, but she was a, you know, she was a solid player. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a really, really good athlete. I used to play team handball with her in the garden. Right. Uh, just a, you know, just a really good athlete. Uh, but she was way before her time, before really women would do sports. So, right. Um, and anyway, didn't, and yeah, didn't, she was. A, didn't both your parents weren't they into skiing as well? Uh, well, yeah, both my, fa- well, my, my real father, my birth father right. was a, was a general manager of a ski, uh, ski, um, uh, lodge where I grew up, where I lived until I was about four. Uh, and, um, and, and he was also in the ski patrol and my, my, my stepfather who became my, well, my real father and, and my coach, uh, was also a great athlete, a uh, great skier. And and my mom skied with me, but she was pregnant with me <laughs> a couple of months. Oh so, wow! Uh, Glad she didn't fall yeah, too I started, hard. Yeah, I, 
yeah, you know, she wouldn't fall. She uh-huh. was good enough to not fall. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, you know, I had no choice but to become an athlete with with those uh, with those with that DNA. Amazing, amazing that uh, you, you know, you grew up playing. I mean, obviously, you were a darn good clay car player. You won two French Opens and plenty in, in doubles as well. But obviously, it turned out to be the quicker course turned out to be your your best service. Obviously, Wimbledon, uh, you were the, the greatest Wimbledon champion, certainly sing in singles, doubles. I know you tied with Billie Jean for total uh, titles, but you won the most in singles in the in the modern era. But well, so how long did you play on clay? Like, when do you have any memory of playing for the first time on a surface other than clay? Uh, yeah, so it was all clay. Uh, then I got a coach when I was nine years old. My mm-hmm. my father uh, got got this man George Pharma to teach me one one hour a week, and then my dad learned from him. So by the time I was twelve, George Pharma left the country. That's when the Russians came in in '68, and so then my father became my coach, and uh, and I did not step on anything other than clay till I was about fourteen, I think. Wow. We played uh, when we would. Pr- there were only three play court indoor courts in the whole country which was in Prague which was half an hour train ride okay just to get to the clay courts uh, just to get to the indoor courts I had to take the train right. then I would get on a tram then I would go on another tram and then walk to the club so it was like an hour hour procedure with my gear to get there right so right. when I had the hour on the court I I uh, loved every minute of it when my coach would was talking to me, uh, I would run to the net so he, I could hear him, and then I would run back and pick up the ball so mm-hmm. I wouldn't waste any time of that hour with him. Utilize every second, literally. Um, and uh, I did not, and, and we played, uh, and then we played sometimes, like once a week, but by the time I was 14, we would play on, on hardwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, wow. There were some basketball courts, right. and that was lightning fast. So, you know, I bet you like that, right? <laughs> well, it was, it was too fast. It right. was too fast, but you had to adapt to it. So we went from clay to wood, to clay to wood. We would, like, once a week, we would be on the wood and maybe three times a week on the clay, something like that. In, in, once I started playing more, when I was 14, 15. Before that, I would only play, like, once a week wow. indoors. Wow, uh, that's amazing. In the winter. Yeah, so we didn't have that much court time. What, um, but, what, uh, what, but, yeah, that was quite what, a change. What yeah. other things did you do when you were before you started focusing more on tennis in your mid-teenage years? Did you play soccer? Did you what other sport? I know you you're obviously into you're still a great skier, and you get you're into hockey too. So, but what else did you do as a kid? Well, I did all the cross training that I didn't know was cross training, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that was just normal life, you know, going uh, going hiking with the boys, climbing trees, riding my bicycle. Uh, swimming in the river, skating on it in the winter, um, stuff like that. Always run, running, uh, like after the movies, going home. I was, I would always run home because I was too scared in the in the not in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> the lights on the streets weren't that good, right. not that there was any crime, but still you ran, right? Right. So I was always very active and very, uh, you know, I had to carry my my stuff. Going to uh, going to the club at fourteen, uh, I would go to. High school, I would go take the train to one town, um, and then two o'clock in the afternoon, school was out, eat a quick lunch, catch the train to Prague with my tennis gear and my school gear. Mm-hmm. Then once once at the train station, I would then take one tram, another tram, and a bus, and then walk to the club, Sparta Praha, where they played the tournament in, in Prague. When you, I don't know if you were watching, but that's the club that I played most tennis wow. uh, with Jan Kodesh. So just being there. 
was a workout. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you would, <laughs> and, then and, then, would, and then you would go home after that. You'd have to get home. Exactly. Then I had to catch the, you know, the last train home at like 640, not last train, but it was 640 after that it was eight o'clock. So you had to make the 640 train and get home about 715, eat dinner, right. do some homework and go to sleep and repeat the next day. So it was, you know, it was very structured but, and busy, but good busy. I was able to, well, so ten, you asked me what other sports and nothing organized. I mm-hmm. played soccer also uh, with the boys, but, uh, or we just skated on the pond with the boys, but nothing organized. The only organized thing that I did was tennis because I loved it the most. That was really, I think if there had been an opportunity to be on a basketball team or mm-hmm. a soccer team with girls, I would have played that too. But tennis would have always prevailed. <clears throat> Did you like the solo? Because I remember as a kid, I used to love going to the wall, you know, at the Douglaston Club where we grew up and, and sort of play imaginary matches, you know, with the great players, Laver yeah. and Rosewall. Is that, is that where, and I think that's where I got the love of sort of the, the, the singularity of tennis, you know, just mm. being out there on your own. Do you think that was where you developed, you know, where it was like, okay, tennis is a sport that I love because I like doing these things on my own? Uh, well, that was maybe because that was all there was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, I know your wall, by the way. I've been to your club. It's a solid wall. Yeah, it's a solid wall. Ours, mine is not there anymore. They moved it to another part of the of the club, and uh-huh. where the wall used to be is another court. So we have five courts now. But uh, um, you know, you just have to entertain yourself, right? So my parents would go to the club, and they were doing their thing, and they would say, "Okay, whatever you want to do," and I would go to the wall, and then we would say, "Okay, that's enough," and they would sit me down, and as soon as they weren't looking, I would go back to the wall because mm. we didn't have iPads back then. That was the entertainment, so you had to entertain yourself. And uh, and growing up, I mean, it was a small town, no traffic lights, and I would hang out with mostly good boys, but a couple of girlfriends as well from mm-hmm. my class, and. We would go and, you know, walking in the woods and go mushroom hunting and, and uh, b- blueberry picking in the woods and stuff like that. So it was always active doing, doing things uh, with other people. Uh, but tennis, I didn't mind being on my own. Uh, you know, I remember asking uh, Chris Everett uh, when, you know, I asked her why you got into tennis and wh- and she said, well, because my dad, you know, made me, basically said she made, he made me play tennis. I had no choice, um, which is interesting in its own way, but it sounds like you were more drawn to it. I mean, you had choices to do other things, obviously, but when when yeah. when was the time that you thought, okay, like I can be really good at this game and I could, I could get out of this country and this could be something I could do as a profession. When did that start to happen? Well, the dream was there since I was about eight years old when I saw Rod Labor play in an exhibition in Prague along with Butch Bacos was there and Frank Sedgman, uh, Fred Stolle one year. It was two years in a row they came. Mm-hmm. Um, Luis Ayala uh, was sure. there. So I, I, I just fell in love with how Rod played and, of course, he was the best player in the world at the time. But um, uh, I, I was never pushed into it. It was, you know, I always wanted to go play tennis. Mm-hmm. I don't remember never wanting to go to the club, but it was different. I mean, I would hit with my dad for an hour maybe, but there would be other people there and I would either play sets with them or play doubles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played a lot of sets, practice sets. Uh, so it was, it was never, I never drilled like the cross court down the line stuff that they do all the time. I didn't mm-hmm. do that till I was like 14 years old. <laughs> right. Yeah. My brother it's still, a, my brother still, ball. my brother still yeah. thinks it's silly to do all that because we have all the kids, you know, at our academy, we have them all doing that, all the drill. Mm-hmm. And he's like, this is a total waste of time. He says, why are you doing this? Yep. 
So you're you're no, used to no, company no. that's two two lefty geniuses. So I guess you have a few things in common. <laughs> now, now when yeah, I think we grew up doing the same stuff. Yeah. yeah. Now when you went to when you when you when you made the decision that you wanted to leave Czechoslovakia, was that when you sort of after you'd come and you you know you were 17, 18, you're playing in the U.S., you're starting to play professionally on the tour. Was it something that you'd thought about while you were still in your home country, or did you just get to the U.S. or wherever else you went in Europe and say, you know what, my 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 country sucks. I want to get out of there. When when did that happen? Well, well, it happened after Wimbledon in '75 when I was like top four in the world. I lost to Margaret in the quarters. My parents came to Wimbledon with my sister and. And then we drove back to Czechoslovakia. Everybody was surprised to see us because they just figured that we would have defected then. And we did talk about it, but we decided, no, we don't need to do that. You know, we were, we were okay with how things were. But then that summer, the Federation decided I was too, um, too much of a rebel and they didn't want to let me play the U.S. Open. Mm. So, you know, I'm ranked like four in the world and they don't want me to go to the U.S. Open. They had the power to not give me the visa to go. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so they had to okay my travel. Uh, and, and so I didn't want to be in, you know, it, when somebody else decides whether I can or cannot play somewhere, that's crazy. Right. So, right. uh, at, at the end of at the, finally, like two weeks before the U S open, Jan Kodish intervenes and helped to push the Federation to give me the, the visa. Uh, so I, I left and I played the Medicwick open in New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, or New York, no, Westchester, Westchester, it was in Westchester. Um, and uh, lost to Chris in the finals there, I think. And uh, I knew I wasn't going to go back. And my dad knew that I wasn't going to come back either. And he, he said, just don't tell your mom. And that was the hardest thing, leaving, because I, 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 I was about 99% sure that I wasn't coming back. And, and, uh, and, and then during the Your dad knew it when you left, but he said, don't tell your mom, because that would yeah. have upset her yeah. too much at that point. Yeah, right. And he said, and if you do, if you do go, uh, and we... And you call, don't, and we tell you to come back, don't come back because they may be, you know, holding a gun to our head, making it, making, yeah, well, they were listening in always, but they said, don't, don't, don't believe us, don't believe us if we say you Mm. have to come back because they're making us say that. So that was pretty rough. I mean, it was a one-way ticket. So, you know, after that, everything was a piece of cake when people ask me, oh, was it coming out and how was it being this or that? I'm like, Jesus, after leaving my country, not knowing if I was ever going to see my family, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. But of course, I was I was not even 19 at the time. I was 18 and change, almost 19. And uh, you know, you do stupid stuff, right? You think everything mm-hmm. will work out. That's why they they, they get 18 year olds to go into war because we think we're indestructible. So I just figured things would work out. I knew my family may have some repercussions, but it wasn't like they were going to be shipped off to Siberia, which is what would happen if we were in Russia. Right. So I, I, I was, I knew they would be okay and they were okay. I mean, they got demoted and mm-hmm. there were some repercussions against my sister at that club, Sparta, right. Sparta, uh, Praha, but, um, overall they were okay. And, uh, I was able to send them money and, and take care of them financially. So it all worked out, but it was rough because I didn't see them, didn't see my mom for four years and my dad and my sister for five years. So that was pretty rough. And when you saw them, uh, four or five years later, was that back in, Czechoslovakia, or were they able to get no, out? No, no, I, no, I, no, no, I couldn't go back. If you I couldn't back, go back, okay. Let, no, 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 they wouldn't let me out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, uh, yeah, that was, that would have been a one-way ticket the wrong way. Right. Um, right. So, no, my mom came to Wimbledon in 79 when I defended my title. She came uh, because the Duchess of Kent persuaded the Czech uh, authorities to give her the visa to come visit. 
And so that was the first time I saw my mom, four years at Wimbledon. And, um, and then she went back. And then, uh, and then the following year, my family, my whole family got an immigration visa and they came to live with me in America. But that lasted about a year and a half. And then my dad was like, you know what? I can't, I can't live here because I can't take care of my family. So uh, he went back. Uh, they all went back again in 81. So right. that, was, that was a lot, a lot of tumult in my yeah. life. Uh, well, yeah. you've, you've had a lot and you've dealt with a lot and um, you're still standing stronger than ever and you're an inspiration to many of us in the tennis world and we, we thank you for that, you know, playing until you were 50, winning a major. At, were you 50 or 49? I think you were 49, right? When you lo- 49 and 11 months. <laughs> Many things happened to me That's when crazy. I was at the U.S. Open. Yeah, I mean, that I, was in September. I turned 50 in October. Unbelievable. So, yeah. I, mean, that's, I mean, that may be more incredible than, than all you your uh, major titles that you want to, <laughs> to, to, to do that. So before I let you go, cause I know you've already given me a lot of time and I know you got a couple other things to get to. Um, when you look at the state of tennis now, just in general, um, mm-hmm. where, are, are you happy with where it is? Where could it get better? Where do you see the game going and how do you see it continuing to evolve just as a, as a, as a sport, as a spectacle, as something, you know, for the public to enjoy kind of what's just your overall take on, on where it is now and where it's going? Well, it, well I think we were in a great, great place, but now COVID kind of changed the playing field in, you know, bigger ways than we ever could have imagined. So right now it's just trying to figure out how to put on tournaments where people still get something out of it, but it's really strange without the fans, but better for me, better that than nothing. But once things settle down, hopefully with COVID, I think we're going in the right direction. I love the, the depth of women's tennis and uh, the changing of the guard is definitely happening uh, with, with the young ones coming in. And, and again, Osaka now three majors. And, and what I love the most, I think, about her and, Co- and Coco Golf is their social awareness, mm-hmm. what Osaka right. has done on that front. And Coco Golf, same thing. She went to a protest in Delray Beach and spoke off the cuff, just beautiful. These kids, well, women, young women, uh, uh, are so uh, switched on. They see that they have a opportunity to really make a difference off the court. And, uh, and I just commend them so much on that front. And I think because of that, I think women's tennis will keep uh, really appealing to more and more people. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks to them, more more girls will be will be wanting to not just play tennis but get into sports and and maybe just excel in other fields. They're they're just fantastic role models, and and there there's other players that do that too. But these two really stand mm-hmm. out for me. Uh, and um, and you know we still as women we still face a lot of a uh, lot of obstacles around the world. You know some countries we can't go go into on on our own. You still have to have a male uh, you know accompanying you. Uh, no no way we could play a ter- tennis tournament. Uh, so it's still a men's world uh, corporately. Um, men own something like 95% of the world's real estate. So it's still an uphill battle for women economically. But uh, as far as tennis is concerned, I think we're setting a really good uh, good um, measuring stake and, 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 and a great uh, inspiration for for women and girls around the world. So I'd just like to see more expansion of that and uh, bringing, you know, making people feel good about themselves and, and make and, and inspiring them to do better, hopefully. Well, there's no doubt that you've been a big part of that uh, in, in speaking out and speaking up over the years, and I know you continue to do that. Okay, last thing I want to yeah. get from you, yeah. this is it. 
Martina, because okay. I've done this a few times, so I'm not just picking on you. Uh-huh. Martina okay. versus Serena with wood <laughs> with wood rackets, <laughs> center court Wimbledon. Okay, uh, and I then Martina versus Serena with the modern equipment, but you grew up mm-hmm. with the modern equipment too. Yeah, I, you know, I think, go ahead. Yeah, the so, so, so the question is, break it down for me. Tell me how the match goes, quickly. Well, I think with the wooden racket, mm-hmm. I would be in good shape. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but I would have a one-handed backhand. If I was growing up now, no doubt in my mind, I would have a two-handed backhand. I'd like must be under two-hander with a really good slice and, right. uh, you know, one-handed volley. And uh, I would run around my backhand a lot more, playing more like Roger Federer. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think I would be okay. You okay. Know, I think I would hold my own. <laughs> uh, but uh, I agree. But right. I, I, I mean, Serena's power, obviously, you, you can't say, oh, it's all about the power because it's not. And, and, but uh, I think I would hold my own uh, strength-wise or power-wise. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I'm quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I used the court better. Uh, so it would be a matter of getting into the points with Serena, which is the most difficult part, of course. So if she's serving lights out, then I lose. But if she's just not outrageously serving well, I think I would be okay. Okay. Well, I, I tend to agree. Yeah. I did one, by the way, with Borg, Nadal, French Open, same deal. Best of five on clay. Right. So that's fun. Yeah. This has been a blast, Martina. We could go on and Thank on, you. but I appreciate yep. you doing this for me, and uh, you you take no care worries. of yourself. All right, Martina. We'll do it again. We'll you, do it again. You, All right, you got Patrick. it. The great Thanks. Martina Navratilova, everybody. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.